The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Morning into dancing. Dancing is in the Bible? Really? Yes. It's interesting, dancing every time, just about every time dancing is mentioned in the Bible, it's related to, it's in a positive light, and it has to do with celebrating the true God. And worship from Miriam to David to the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Hannah and Austin. The important truth there that we're reminded of is mourning, meaning sadness, sorrow, hopelessness without Christ. And then when you come to know Christ and have a personal relationship with him, then he makes you a totally new creature. And one of the evidences of that is he puts the Holy Spirit to live in you who produces the fruits of the Spirit. One of those being joy, that you have deep-seated joy that you can only experience if you know Jesus Christ personally. We celebrate that great truth and thank God for the fruits of the gospel. Well, we have the privilege to go to God's Word together to study His Word as we continue our worship. But I would invite you, if you have a bulletin, we'll look at the back. There's a road map for you or our outline of where we're going. Last week we began just a short little series here called The Traits of a Godly Man. And this was kind of to complement Mother's Day where we actually looked at attributes of a godly woman, really emphasizing 1 Peter 3. And then I promised we would do the same on Father's Day. And we're going to, and I told you we'd do more with the men. And so we're going to do that today as well. And that, actually it's going to spill over into next week too. So we're going to look at the traits of the characteristics of a godly man. Today is part two. As you're getting your Bible ready, just a reminder Grace Notes is available in the lobby there, and there's beautiful copies. Much labor, and many have labored in this last edition of members and staff who have contributed to this very edifying uh, publication of our church, a ministry of our church to encourage you, get you up to speed, and just remind you to go ahead and get a copy and, and actually read through it. You will be blessed. Raise your hand if you've read Grace Notes, the most recent edition. Raise your hand. Okay, not very many. Okay, put your hand down. Now the rest of you, just pick it up. And whenever you have a free minute, uh, standing in the supermarket, in line, or wherever it is, you will be blessed. And we're going to keep highlighting that because there's so much good stuff in there and you need to take advantage of that. It'll fill your mind with God's thoughts and lift up your soul. And thanks to all who contributed. Also, raise your hand if you were at Demolition Day yesterday at Creekside. Keep it up for just a second. Okay, go ahead and put your hand down. Looks like more people than have read Grace Notes. Um, we did. We had a crowd yesterday. It was amazing all that got done, expanding that facility. Why are we expanding the facility? To accommodate more people. What people? Us, this people. Because we're God, we believe, is moving in this amazing thing called a, cur- a church merge or combination, and we are getting real close, and now we're at a point of being able to prepare the facilities to accommodate that. So we're going to give you more update specifically for our members today just a reminder short notice but a lot transpired this week that we couldn't have planned for good news all of it let's see yeah all of it good news so a members meeting today immediately after the service just you know stay where you are i know we got stuff i don't want the yogurt to melt that's out in front good stuff um and then we also have an event for the ladies we don't want to mess up their schedule so Hopefully the preacher will finish a little early today. 
see if he keeps his word, and then our meeting is just going to be short to the point. We won't have a Q&A time, but if you have questions, I'll stay up front so you can come ask me or Pastor Bob. That way everybody else can go and eat their yogurt and go to the bridal showers. All right, with that, let's go to God's Word together. Oh, also, uh, I've met already two, at least two first-time visitors today. That's always a joy. So if you are a first-time visitor, visitor to the church, I haven't met you yet today. Today, after the service, as you go out into the lobby, take a left. Just before you get to the exit is the library there. I'll be in there if you want to come in and just say howdy so I can meet you and uh, have a little gift for you as well. It be a blessing to meet you. So that's for our visitors and guests. Take that opportunity. Now we're all going to look to God's Word together. And we, because we're having communion today, uh, we're going to stay here with the kiddos, no children's church. That's okay. we got the Lord's Supper. That's always a blessed time to remember what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Uh, let's go ahead and look at the traits of a godly man. There, notice on the handout there, there are 14 traits or characteristics of a godly man. Are there 14 characteristics in the Bible of a godly man? No. How many are there? I don't know. But I tried to summarize them and condense them, um, and I came up with 14. It could have been 27. Maybe I could have condensed it down to seven. But the 14 that I have here, I just thought, we can't leave these out. These need to be front and center and priorities in terms of the attributes of a godly man. So just to summarize a little bit what we covered the last four points of last week, if you weren't here when we introduced the traits or the characteristics of a godly man, just some summary points were that the title is not traits of a perfect man. Because then that would be a study on Jesus, Christology. It's the characteristics of a godly man. Even though we as sinners, we are fallen and finite. God knows that. But we're his children. And he knows that we're sinful and fallen and not perfect. And at the same time, he exhorts us with many commands and expectations. He expects us to grow. He expects us to mature. He expects us to be headed in a certain direction, on a certain trajectory, to mature in the faith. And if we truly are Christians and claim to be Christians, he puts an expectation on us for that. It's called obedience. And God has clearly lined out and delineated in Scripture commands and obligations that males have who know Jesus Christ that should be basic to their life in terms of characteristics and patterns and habits of their life and also things that should be regularly pursued as an end goal. So God is aware that we are not perfect. He knows that we're sinners and we need his ongoing grace and forgiveness. And through Jesus Christ, he provides that for anyone who calls upon his name and is a Christian. It's like those of you who are parents. You've got children. They're not perfect. You love them. You want to see them grow. You know they're going to make mistakes, and nevertheless, you're loving in your parental treatment of them. That's how God the Father is and the Lord Jesus with his children. And so that's foundational to understand this. This is not a pharisaical, legalistic approach to perfectionism by any means. As a matter of fact, I I loathe perfectionism or the concept of being a perfectionist for many reasons. Number one, it's totally unbiblical. So that's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about things that God has clearly laid down for us to pursue in terms of obedience that please him and that for our, is for our good and the good of others. 
as well. So really, as I said last week, it's the not the perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. Which way is that iceberg floating? Is it going that way? Towards the world? Towards compromise? Or is it moving very slowly, floating, sometimes getting stalled, but going in that direction? That direction of holiness, of Christ, of Jesus, of forgiveness, of grace, of prayer, of perseverance towards the things of God. The Christian life, as we said last week, it's a marathon. It's a marathon. It takes time. And then notice the 14 characteristics or attributes. We just covered the first four. Uh, Number one, we laid the foundation that the man of God knows Jesus personally. It starts there. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, the other 13 really don't make any sense. They don't matter. If you're trying to do those, you're living life in the flesh. So priority number one is truly knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repenting, admitting you're a sinner, bowing the knee to Christ, the Savior, and the Lord, and asking him to take over your life because he died on the cross for sin and then was buried and rose again from the dead and reigns on high. You must embrace and believe the gospel so that Christ can adopt you and his family. Change your life. That's the starting point. That's where it all begins, being a godly man. Just another point that I made last week that's important. It says the traits of a godly man. It could also say the traits of a godly boy. Or it could be the traits of a godly young man. You could legitimately be in eighth grade and a Christian young man, born again. And virtually all of these, just about every single one would still apply to you as an eighth grader. It's possible you could even be a seven-year-old young boy who truly knows and loves Jesus and understands the simplicity of the gospel, the fact that you're a sinner. These also would be applicable to you. So with that said, these apply to all Christian men. It doesn't matter if you're married or not. Be single, young, old. So there's common ground here for all of us. They're convicting They're convicting, but they're also encouraging. They're convicting, but they're also good reminders. Again, as I was studying this week, just good reminders like, wow, I fall so short. Lord, thanks for your grace. Thanks for your help. Thanks for the Holy Spirit. Thanks for these reminders, these timely needed reminders in your word. God, I need this. So it starts with being knowing Jesus personally. Do you know him personally? Number two uh, trait was the God of man knows his God-given identity. You were either made as male or female. That's it. Those are the only God-given options. We saw that from Scripture, especially in Genesis when God created the first two humans, Adam and Eve. Hasn't changed ever since then. It will always be the same. Every human being born into this world is designated male or female by God the Creator, despite what the secular culture wants to tell us. Every human being is either XX or XY. You can't change your DNA. You can put girls' clothes on if you're a boy. Scripture explicitly condemns that, by the way, in Leviticus. You can even have operations done. That's all external. It's all superficial. It doesn't change your DNA. You can't change your XX to an XY and your XY to an XX. Impossible. Can't do it. So we've got to own up to and be thankful for the identity that God has given us as males, as men. That was number two. Number three, a man of God knows he's finite and fallen. He's finite. We are creatures god is the creator that will never change even in heaven 
and in this life we are fallen even though we're Christians, both of those put together reminds us that we are dependent. A true godly man lives his life oriented, knowing that he is dependent always and forevermore on God the Creator, Jesus the Savior. These all have to do with our mindset and attitude and worldview as Christian men. And then number four we talked about last week is the man of God is decisive. He is decisive. This is one of the basic things that God created man for, to be a leader, which is going to complement a couple other points we have coming later. But he is decisive. Uh, And we talked explicitly about that. God has created males to grow up to be leaders. And if they get married, they're leaders in their home. They're called the head of the home. They're to be leaders in the church. And with that, God has given us the Constitution, capabilities, to fulfill that requirement of being a leader. One of those attributes is being decisive, and this requires a sober-mindedness and many other attributes we talked about. To be a decisive person, not a wishy-washy, double-minded, flaky person. Scripture creates a profile of that kind of a person, condemns that person. Rather, God wants us to be decisive. So let's pick up on uh, the next several attributes here see how far we get and we'll pick up and we will i promise you conclude next week traits of a godly man so number five uh the godly man has an ordered life ordered o-r-d-e-r orderly ordered and i take this specifically from first timothy 3 2 depending upon your english translation there in first timothy 3 paul gives Uh, qualifications for an elder or a pastor or a bishop or an overseer or a church leader, they're all the same. And they're objective qualifications that need to be characteristic of the church leader's life. He's characterized by these things. Well, one of the specific words is where we get the word ordered. The New American Standard says respectable. The man of God is respectable. Not my favorite translation. The Greek word is kosmion, kosmios, kosmios, kosmos, 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 cosmo, cosmos, the cosmos. Actually, that's where we get the English word for the cosmos, the planets that we have in outer space. Why are they called the cosmos? Well, one of the reasons is because the planets are well-ordered. They are stable. They are consistent. They don't change. They have no variance. And it's objectively observed. They are well-ordered. The sun rises, comes up, same routine every single day. It's invariable. Same with the planets. There's a divine intelligence behind this ordering. So that's where we get the word cosmology, the cosmos. So it speaks of regularity, of consistency, reliability, One, probably the best Greek scholar says, well-ordered, cosmios, that a man of God is well-ordered. Cosmios, the Greek word, by the way, it's not, there is no one sufficient English word to give the full nuances of all the meaning of cosmios in Greek and what it means. So cosmios really isn't a word as much as it is a lifestyle. So there are many words that describe it. So we get the English word cosmos. Another English word that we get from cosmos, cosmion, is cosmetics. And when I say cosmetics, many times you're thinking of maybe a lady putting on makeup on her face. 
And that's where that word comes from, cosmetics. Remember we said that cosmos has to do with well-ordered? Well, that's what a woman's doing when she's putting makeup on to make her face well-ordered, right? And presentable. And a healthy demeanor. The opposite of that is chaotic. She doesn't want to go out in public with a chaotic face. Put some cosmetics on there. That's where that word comes from. So synonyms for cosmios that apply to the man of God or the aspiring man of God or a Christian who's got that as his goal. This is a priority from God. We need to be cosmios. We need to be ordered. We need to be orderly in our life. We need to be well arranged is one translation. Well arranged or balanced. You have a balanced life. Very specifically what this word refers to did a men's conference not long ago, and I did some of these attributes of a godly man at a men's conference in Texas. And I got to this point, and afterward, it, by the way, this is in San Antonio where they have an Air Force base, and there's a lot of military guys. So there's a lot of military guys in that church. A lot of military guys were at this conference, and I, they loved this point when I said that a godly man has a well-ordered life, an ordered life. And when I gave all the synonyms of what that meant, well-arranged, balanced, Self-controlled, consistent, faithful, follow-through, responsible, punctual, not flaky. And then I said this, disciplined, oh, they love that, the military guys. One of the guys, in the he was a, a, a colonel, a retired colonel in the military. And another one was a captain in the Air Force. And these guys, just they cornered me afterwards, oh, I love that. Yeah, you got to emphasize discipline more. Discipline, that's what it's all about. That is true spirituality. Now, these are military guys, of course. You gotta think, and think about it. The most godly thing you could do to begin your day is to make your bed. And to polish your belt buckle. But that's what it means to them. They understand, the military guys, whether they're Christian or not. The little things matter. They do. Making your bed, that's why when you go to the military, you that's the first thing you do is you make your bed. You fold your clothes. You iron your clothes. You shine your shoes. You tie your shoe the right way. You polish your belt buckle. All these little, you shave the right way and don't miss a hair. It matters. The little things matter. Because big things are built upon and made of the little things. They understand that in the military. And this provides a well-ordered, balanced, organized life by which you can operate with stability. Same is true in the Christian life at a spiritual level. God understands that. God knows that. And that's what being well-ordered means. And it has applications to every area of life. Physically, you have a well-ordered life. That means you're organized. Whether it's your bedroom, your car, your house, your office, your domain, you're well-ordered. You're able to find stuff when you need it. And you're constantly working on that and hopefully growing and developing in that area. You're not a slob. Living McManus translation, not a slob. Literally, that's what it means to be orderly. So it's the external, but it also does refer, especially from a biblical point of view, to have a well-ordered discipline life in your inward demeanor as well. You're not chaotic on the inside. You're not chaotic in your thinking. You're disciplined and orderly in your thinking. You, you are deliberate in your living. You're deliberate in your daily planning and organization. You don't live life flippantly from hour to hour, moment to moment. Passe, laissez-faire. Oh, I don't know what's going to come next. Take it as it comes in a passive kind of detached manner. That's not an orderly life. So the man of God is has an ordered life, well-ordered, balanced in many ways, 
the ability to, I like this, the ability being orderly, the ability to develop and maintain good habits. Start with the little things. And as I already said, this pertains to not just the outside of your life, but also the inside. It implies a well-ordered demeanor. The orderly fulfillment of all duties and the ordering of the inner life, like the spiritual disciplines, from which these flow, the spiritual disciplines. You're orderly with your spiritual disciplines. So somebody would ask you, tell me about your prayer life. Well, what do you mean? Well, when's the last time you like had formal, deliberate prayer one-on-one with God like Jesus said in Matthew 6? Um, I, well, hmm, I can't remember. It's kind of hit and miss. doesn't happen at all. It's all over the map. There's no regularity. Wow. You need some depth there and growth in that area. Tell me about your Bible reading time, devotional time, where God speaks to you through the Holy Spirit. Is it orderly? So, again, it applies to not just these external room things like is your room clean, but your spiritual life as well. Do you have an ordered thought life as well? So this is deliberate living, deliberate planned living day to day. Not a casual, indifferent approach to life. Jesus, of course, is the master. He's the model of this. He had an ordered life. I mean, when you read the Gospels, it's amazing. Think about it from a big picture point of view. Jesus was never in a hurry. Find a passage where Jesus was in a hurry. And he's huffing and puffing. I hope we get there on time. No. He was always on time. He's never in a hurry. He's never in a panic. He's always where he needs to be. Why? Because he had an orderly life inside and out. That had to do with his obedience to the Father. He only did what was in obedience to the Father. He always did the will of the Father. Yeah, he's perfect. Yeah, he's God. Nevertheless, he still is the model that we aspire to. Paul said, be examples of me as I also am of Christ. Paul was aspiring after the model of Christ in all things. So we can take Paul as an example. Paul lived an orderly life. And he worked hard at it. Maybe that should be our model. So men, boys, young men, challenge you. Evaluate your life. Look at it. Is it orderly? Is it cosmos? Is it out of control? Are there areas where you need to... It's kind of like your, your life. You're spinning like 13 plates. And each one of the plates represents a different area of life. And you're spinning this one. Uh-oh, that one's getting weak. It's about to fall. You've got to go back over and spin that one. Trying to keep balance. Because balance is one of the keys to this. So the man of God, with God's help, lives an orderly life. Let's go on to number six. Uh, the real man works... Hard. The real man works hard. The Bible does have really a comprehensive theology of work and labor, if you think about it. That's unique about the Bible. There's no other religious book that has anything like it. A complete, comprehensive theology of work and labor from actually how we're supposed to do the external labor to the attitude in which we carry it out. And the man of God works hard. Notice number six doesn't say the real man works because that's not good enough. We're going to look at Paul in just a second. Paul uses a Greek word where we get the word copious, copion, copioi. And in many of the passages where he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, and he reminds them 
that I worked hard among you. And he uses that word copiously. I didn't just work. I worked hard. He was a model. So the real man works hard. Let's start in the beginning in terms of a theology of work and just examining our own life. Do I work hard or am I lazy? Genesis 3.19. In the curse, God, we, we know this, God told Adam because he sinned, then he was punished by God and few different ways and one of those he said your work is also going to be cursed adam because of your sin and it's going to be cursed and that from now on you have to toil under blood sweat and tears pretty much just to have an existence in life and that's going to be true of you and all of your posterity so that hasn't changed so god expects us he created us for work and he created us for hard work as his creatures god created us for hard work before the fall god created us for hard work after the fall that's still his expectation and get this when we get to heaven it's not liberation from work it's still we're still working in heaven one of the names that god has given believers is he calls them servants what does a servant do one thing serve what does that mean active service active work in deference and loyalty to someone else and believers are servants and we are servants Uh, adam was a servant before the fall believers are servants after the fall all believers are servants in heaven. We'll be working forevermore. It's just something inherent and second nature to being a human being is that we work productively and purposefully and is to be embraced by God. Get, work actually is a gift from God. Think of it that way. The next time you want to complain about your work, be reminded of James, be reminded of Corinthians, be reminded of Ecclesiastes, that, get, that work is a gift from God. It really is. remember one mentor, pastor of mine, I'll never forget, it was 20 years ago, and just sitting with another pastor, he'd been down the road, he'd been pastoring for 25 years at the same church. He just reminded me in the church that was quite dysfunctional where I was at at the time, he just said, you know what, you got a job, you're employed, you're, you're, are you bringing in an income? Yeah, I mean, the church is paying you. Yeah. So that you can pay your bills and provide for your wife and kids. Yeah, it's, be thankful to God, that is a gift. I'll never forget that. Really what I was saying, quit complaining, you sissy. Thank God. And that's the picture that the Bible gives of work. Work is a gift from God. It's intended to be so. Let's look at a couple of verses just to be reminded of the theology of work and what God expects. By the, the whole book of Proverbs was written to young men in particular to help them grow in godliness in every area of life, particularly in practical areas. So just throughout the book of Proverbs are all these exhortations to the young man about work from how to do it and his attitude about it just read a couple proverbs chapter 6 this is for you christian verse chapter 6 verse 1 says my son okay young man if you're a young man here today listen this is from god go to the ant it's a command go to the ant go out in the yard and find an ant first thing you'll notice about the ant is what they are on the move have you ever stopped and found a living ant and he's just kind of sitting there smoking a cigarette, taking a break, feet kicked it? No. It's like that where you go to pick him up and he's, whoa, where's he going? Man, he's on the move. They're always on the move. So that's what he wants us to see. They're on the move. They're productive. They're not idle. They're not sluggish. They're not passive. They're on the move. They're exerting energy. Go to the ant. Oh, sluggard. See, there's the contrast. 
They're on the move. You're a sluggard. What's a sluggard? A sluggard sits around, does nothing. Unproductive, idle, inactive. Well, you need to observe the ant's ways and be white. Be like the ant. Be on the move. Get something done. Start moving. Be productive. Don't be lazy. That's a profound metaphor, actually. Well, nobody here to tell me what to do. Oh, okay. Well, verse 7. Well, the ant has no chief. There ain't no boss. They're still productive. What's your excuse? They don't have a chief. They don't have an officer. They don't have a ruler. They don't sit around waiting for somebody to tell them what to do. They're proactive. The ant prepares her food in the summer, thinks ahead, plans ahead, doesn't rely on others for provision. As they are able body, gathers her provision in the harvest. Verse 9, how long will you lie down, O sluggard, you lazy person, you lazy bum? That's the living McManus translation. When will you arise from your sleep? This is somebody who doesn't like work, somebody who's afraid of work, somebody who makes excuses about work, somebody who would rather sponge off other people. Then a little, it's kind of cutie, right? It's this little ditty for the sluggards. Here's a little ditty. Sing this, whistle this while you're sitting around doing nothing. Verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Well, if you do that, your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. Don't be lazy. Don't be a sluggard. Again, this is assuming that you're able-bodied. No excuses. Uh, Proverbs 14, 23. In all labor, in all hard work, there is profit. I've, I've met guys that don't have a job. Really? Why not? Uh, you've been looking? And then they got 13 excuses. And one of the excuses is, I'm just, well, I'm looking in this specific area for this amount of pay. Really? Wow. Okay. Why don't you just work somewhere? Work somewhere else for less pay. Be productive. Make something rather than nothing. And that's what this verse speaks to. Verse 23, in all labor, there's profit. In all work. There's profit because it's by God's design. It's just a law. It's a spiritual law. Thou shalt work and thou shalt benefit from work. Mere talk leads only to poverty. What's that mean, mere talk? Oh, excuses. This is why I don't have a job. This is why I don't have work. This is why I don't have money. This is why I have a need. This is why everybody ripped me off. This is why I'm a victim. This is why the government owes me something. This is why blah, 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 blah. That's what it's saying. I'll read it again. Mere talk leads only to poverty. Actually, these truths, they're kind of foreign to hear us in America as we're becoming more and more dependent upon handouts, welfare. There's legitimate welfare. There's illegitimate welfare. We've got too much illegitimate welfare going on. Look at this one. This is shocking. This is in the Bible. This is in the New Testament, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Follow along. It's, kind of, it's about a paragraph. But it's the New Testament biblical work ethic. The biblical Christian work ethic. You know, a lot of people have the wrong view of Christianity and think, well, Christianity is that religion where you can just go and get handouts for free with no expectations, no, no questions asked. That, well, no, not really. That's not the Bible. It's not Jesus' perspective. Jesus was never idle. Once again, Jesus is the master example of this truth. There was no harder worker than Jesus. Jesus didn't complain about working hard. Jesus was always working hard. Jesus knows, knew that working hard pleased the Father. Jesus knew that it was actually an act of worship to work. He knew there were benefits. God gave him benefits to working hard. He knew that 
working hard also benefited others by the fruit of his labor? Jesus knew this. Second Thessalonians, starting, listen to this, chapter 3, verse 6. Now, there, Paul planted this church in Thessalonica. He went away. He got run out of the city, by the way. And then it was against the law for Paul to come back into Thessalonica where he planted a church. So that must have been heart-rending. So he, the only way he could correspond with his sheep, his, the church that he planted, was by correspondence through writing. And so here's one of the letters he sent them. And he was getting reports about them. And there were people in the Thessalonian church who were lazy. They weren't working. They were good in a lot of ways, but one of the ways they weren't good, there were a few people at least that were lazy. They were mooching. They were begging. They weren't working. They were being idle. This is all very specifically stated. So he addresses almost the whole chapter is addressing lazy beggars in the church. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse six. Now we command you. This is an apostle. This isn't an option. This is not just an idea or a suggestion. This is not a preference. This is a command from almighty God through the spokesperson of an apostle who has binding authority, the apostle Paul. Now we, the apostles, command you, Christians, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you truly are a believer, that you keep away from, keep aloof from, isolate yourself away from every brother. Who's that? Every person that professes to be a Christian. Well, what kind of Christian do we stay away from? What kind of person who professes to be a Christian do we stay away from? Well, middle of verse 6, well, the, the professing brother who leads an unruly life, an undisciplined life, not according to the tradition which he received from us. And he's specifically talking about a work ethic. And Paul, when he went into Thessalonica, he was a hard worker. He worked to provide for himself. He wasn't sponging money off the Thessalonians. He wasn't abusing the ministry to gain money. He was exemplary in his work ethic. He was probably the hardest worker there. And that was the model that he laid down. God want, God created you to work. God wants you to work, men. So that's the tradition. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow my example, the apostle, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you when we were there. Verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. See, he wasn't a beggar or a mooch. But with labor and hardship, there it is, labor, laborious, toilsome labor, working to the point of exhaustion. Not only that, hardship. He didn't complain about it, working night and day. He didn't have a day off, pastor's day off. Working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It wasn't imposing on anybody. It wasn't presumptuous on anybody. Not because we didn't have the right to do this. We did have the right to do it because he was an apostle. Called by God, he could have passed around the plate. He didn't. But in order to offer ourselves as a model, an example for you, so that you would follow our example to be hard workers, self-sufficient, you'd be exemplary. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. Here it is. This was a command. If anyone is not willing to work. See, he's saying this to the church. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Wow, that's got to be one of the harshest verses in the whole Bible, at least in the New Testament. Well, I thought the Christian ethic and impulse at first blush all the time is when you see somebody and says, uh, give me a handout, you just pull out your wallet. No. That's not the Christian ethic. Do we give? Yes. Do we give generously? Yes. Do we give sacrificially? Absolutely. But we don't do it in a vacuum. We don't do it without knowledge. We don't do it out of context. 
there are prerequisites. There is a vetting system. You find out the person's need. You find out who they are. You find out their situation. You ask some questions. You find out if they're a deceiver or a shyster because they're out there. Paul talks about that as well. There are people doing this lying, ripping people off for money, and then they go to the next place. And they're hopping all over the place, ripping naive people off who have generous hearts. And Paul's saying, no, you you need to be discerning as a giver here. He's not saying don't give. He's saying you need to be discerning. Be careful. And if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat. Again, this is assuming an able-bodied person who can work. Verse 11, for we hear that some among you right there in the church are leading an undisciplined life. There it is. They're idle. They don't work. They're lazy. They're begging, doing no work at all, quote, doing no work at all. Well, what are they doing? Acting like busybodies. That's that's a harsh word. But it is part of the theology, according to the Bible, of work and labor. And we need to add that in there as one of the components. Now, to balance that, Paul says in Ephesians 4, 8, okay, don't be thieves anymore. Don't Christians shouldn't be thieves. You shouldn't be stealing. You shouldn't be stealing on your taxes. You shouldn't be stealing in the workplace. You shouldn't be stealing at the grocery store. You shouldn't be stealing at all. That's ungodly. It's unchristlike. You're not a godly man if you're a thief. Quit doing it. Knock it off. Stop it. You're a horrible testimony. You're inconsistent with what God's called you to be. Stop stealing. It's a command. And then to balance it, he says, rather work hard. And there he uses that word kapios again. Instead of being lazy and being a thief, work hard, work hard, work hard. Labor to the point of exhaustion to bring in an income. And then he says this, so what? So that you can share with others who have need. There it is. So Paul does recognize there are those in need at times, and it's a legitimate need, and we need to help meet that need. And that's why here at our church we have a benevolence fund to meet these legitimate needs that arise in the church. We all need help. But we can't abandon this most basic fundamental work ethic of a man. A man's man is a man who works and works hard. Just really fundamental and specific. In addition to that, I'll throw in a couple of corollaries, and that's how we should work. So we're supposed to work and work very hard. And then Colossians says we're supposed to work under the Lord. That's Colossians chapter 3, work under the Lord. What does that mean? That means pretend Jesus is your boss at Google, at Facebook. Or wherever you work. You're working unto him because you're a Christian. He gave you that job. He's your boss. He knows everything. He's in charge. He's totally sovereign. He overrules every decision going on at your job anyway. Because everything's happening according to his plan. And when you're working the right way, you're pleasing him. It's an act of worship. And it pleases the Lord as you work in the right way with the right attitude. He sees it all. There's nothing hidden to him with whom we have to do. So... That's how we work. We work to, as though Jesus is our boss. And also Philippians 4.13 says, do all things without grumbling. And the Greek word there is murmur, 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 murmur. Do all things without murmur, 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 murmur. the word. Complaining about your job. When's the last time you complained about your job? Probably not long ago. Stop. If you're a Christian, knock it off. Quit it. Same thing. It's a command. And then read the next verse after he says, do all things without grumbling and complaining so that don't be a whiner and complainer. Rather, do the opposite. Be thankful. Be content. Because you're out in the world. People are watching you. You claim to be a Christian. You represent Christ as an ambassador. And you need to be a light under this dark world. And if you're a whiner all the time, you're a lousy testimony. You're not a testimony for Christ. I'm not a testimony for Christ. If I'm whining about my job, I've had to have plenty of 
mentors and older men in my lifetime over the years put their finger in my face and say, quit whining about your job. You're privileged to work for the, the church of Jesus Christ. Really? And you get paid? You get a day off? You get vacation? Seriously? You get a cushy air-conditioned office at that church? What are you complaining about? Well, it's, it's all those difficult people, sir. Doesn't matter. That's how we need to perceive it. It's a gift from God. And be content. So those, I'm going to leave that, uh, for our men, including me as a challenge. If you've got a job starting today, maybe you have to go to work later today. And you claim to be a Christian, then think about this. Think as Jesus is your boss. You clock in with Jesus. You clock out with Jesus. He's your Lord. He saw everything that happened. He knows it all. You can confide in him, trust in him, no matter how bad or good or ugly it gets at work. He works all things together for good, for you. That's why we can be content. Well, with that, let's go uh, to the Lord's table. Now, we have the privilege to have communion. And as we prepare our hearts, just to, if you want to follow along at 1 Corinthians 11, as the, the brothers come and bring the elements up, as the plate comes around, just grab one of the, just one cup. And in it, it's got the bread and the drink there, and just hold that. And we'll all partake together. By way of invitation, communion is, it's really a memorial and symbolic act of Jesus Christ and his work as Savior. It's a tangible reminder that Jesus Christ gave his body, his life, his blood on behalf of sinners by willingly, sacrificially dying on the cross for sinners. And we celebrate that today. We thank the Lord Jesus for that. That's why we have communion. So communion at the Lord's table. And I'll just ask the, the brothers to start passing that out now. And uh, we'll celebrate together in just a second. So if you're a Christian, you are invited to take the Lord's table. If you're not a Christian or not sure, just let, let this pass by the plate. God would prefer that. As always, we're reminded in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that Paul reminds us to be sober about taking the Lord's communion, to examine your heart. We all need to examine our heart, and what that means really is to evaluate our life, and as far as we can tell and know, are we okay with God and others? Are we holding a grudge against somebody else, especially another believer? Holding on to bitter unforgiveness in our heart? Paul says, boy, you better not take communion in that condition. Jesus says, absolutely don't. Try to worship God in that state of mind in Matthew 5. Trying to be religious, worshiping God when you've got bitter unforgiveness or hatred in your heart, especially towards another believer. If you do, all you're doing is asking God to chasten you severely. And he will. He will because he loves us. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens and disciplines like a son. This is Hebrews 12. So it is a time of reflection and sobering, and and it's it's always legitimate to pray the prayer maybe of First John one, where a reminder: if you confess your sin, He's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So maybe okay, let's see. Did I commit? Uh, are there any sins I'm forgetting? Probably. Yeah, we commit sins we're not even aware of. That's why a sincere, honest crying out to the Father in your own heart, Lord, forgive my sin. Forgive my known sin and my unknown sins. Forgive my sins of commission and omission. Things I've done and things I've failed to do. Soften my hardened heart that I have towards other people. 
in my family or coworkers or people in the church with your spirit soften my heart and bring about restoration, reconciliation. I want to honor you with my life. So that's what I'm talking about, that kind of prayer. That, that pleases God, and he'll answer your prayer because you're praying in the will of God, and every pray, prayer that we pray in the will of God, he answers gladly. It's a beautiful thing. The gracious Lord Jesus will answer those kind of prayers. So right now I'm just going to give you a minute as the music plays, and just talk to the Lord in your own heart. Uh, before we take together. Just let me read a couple of verses before we partake together. The Apostle Paul said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, that's Eucharisto, Eucharist, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. It's a symbol of my body. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's proclaim the Lord's death and be thankful to him together as we remember him. Let's partake. So before our final song, I'm going to close this in prayer. And just a reminder to our members, we want to get to our membership meeting as soon as possible. So if you're not a member, you can scuttle out to the lobby or in front of the church, and members will go ahead and get started. And just God, God bless you this day as you walk closely with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and your goodness to us that you've shown through Jesus Christ, oh, the Son of God, the willful, sacrificial Savior who died on behalf of sinners according to your plan, according to his plan, providing forgiveness of sin and salvation, adoption into your family, the gift of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate all of these things at this time of communion. Thank you for this tangible way that we can, as a body, remember this most blessed truth of all. Father, help us, particularly those of us who are men who profess your name through the power of the Holy Spirit and accountability and the encouragement from your word to pursue a life of godliness as you've outlined, uh, outlined in Scripture, starting with knowing Jesus first and being devoted to him in all things. And we ask your blessing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. 
For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.